Hello, and as we resonate to the marvellous and soulful music of Alicia and Archer, it's time for the first ever Bristol Cult Film Society Cult Film Podcast Podcast Yes, it's the Bristol Cult Film Society Cult Film Podcast Podcast, and I'm your host, shameful Steve Noble. With each episode, we will unearth a treasure trove of cultish, movie-based news and reviews, courtesy of the most informed and erudite film group on the internet, the Bristol Cult Film Society. Episode 1. Axe Murders in Ashley Down. In each and every episode, the cream of cult film reviewers, drawn from the thousand members of our beloved BCFS, will wax lyrical about their favourite cult movies, whilst the three other panel members chop them down to size. This week we dig into coal mining classic Meitwan, blow our minds with the mushy horror of Body Melt, and get addicted to 80s drug documentary Story of a Junkie. And after those panel discussions, we have another treat for you. What's that sound? It's our very own Blu-ray Bloodhound, the mighty John Kirk. Each episode, the Bloodhound will be alerting you to the very best new cult film releases on physical media. You know that annoying guy that always snaps up the UHD 4K steelbook of Last House on the Left that was available for two hours only on a wet Wednesday in Venezuela? Well, that's John. And he'll be telling you the optimum time to get that steelbook for a steal, that director's cut at cut price, or that SF classic at launch. But first, Steve Naive's words of movie wisdom. Steve is the founder of the Bristol Cult Film Society. And what Steve doesn't know about cult film, you could write on the head of a matchstick in a very special Chinese matchstick book. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Naive's words of movie wisdom. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. We could get an Uber. Shall I get an Uber? Steve Naive's words of movie wisdom there. Now I want you to imagine the scene. It's a Sunday afternoon in October. Four relative strangers huddle round the warmth of a Zoom call. Four strangers united by a love of movies, an inquisitive attitude and varying degrees of a Bristol accent. They've all been set homework in the past couple of weeks to each watch a film of the other members choosing. The only precondition was that the film must be easy to find online. And as I said, the Bristol Cult Film Society has the most erudite, informed membership of any film group on the internet. I wanted three experts, three masters of their subject, three people whose cultural and cinematic credentials were beyond question. Sadly, they weren't available, so here's the panel. My name's Nick Gilbert, and I will be talking about Matewan, directed by John Sayles. My name is Ian Loder, and I will be talking about the 1993 horror comedy Body Melt. My name's Steve Naive, and I will be talking about Lech Kowalski's Story of a Junkie. 1981, I think it was. It were 1920 in the southwest field and things was tough. The miners was trying to bring the union to West Virginia and the coal operators and their gun thugs was set on keeping them out. 
Them was hard people, your coal miners then. They wasn't nobody who wanted to cross. So push come to shove, and pretty soon we had us a war down there in Mango County, which in them days was known as Bloody Mango. And that's where it all come to a head, there on Tug Fork, in the town of Matewan. Okay, so Matewan was directed by John Sales, and it came out in 1987. Uh, and it was uh, following on for a number of much lower budget films that he had made, um, such as uh, Return of the Secaucus 7 and Liana and uh, Brother from Another Planet. Uh, uh, he had a reasonably big budget for this, about $4 million. Um, it only took $2 million at the box office, so a bit of a flop for um, in that sense. Uh, but it did do well critically. Um, it's based on real events surrounding a coal miners' strike in West Virginia in the 1920s. And um, yeah, it was uh, a long standing project of John Sayles that um, he, uh, he really wanted to make, him and his partner Maggie Renzi, uh, who both appear in the film um, in small parts. And um, it was shot by. Haskell Wexler, the great Haskell Wexler, uh, who also shot in the heat of the night and um, more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, directed the film Medium Cool. Uh, he got a nomination for the Oscar, uh, but didn't win. Uh, and it's got an amazing cast of um, John Sayles regulars like uh, Chris Cooper, Mary McDonnell, David Strathen, um, all of whom went on to bigger things um but not not necessarily better things uh also a young a very young will oldham aka bonnie prince billy who i think this is his one and only film gave up acting after this and focused on the the singing uh james earl jones uh, aka darth vader uh gives a fantastic performance and um it's really quite a conventional film uh, i mean I'm, I'm sure for a lot of cult film fans it's it's a bit dull and worthy and um but i think that there's there's a lot to be said for mates one and i'm sure we'll be saying it <laughs> dull and worthy you, you'll never have a job in marketing <laughs> honestly <laughs> i thought it was cracking by the way i really really enjoyed it and in fact of the films that we watched, I took the least notes on this one because I actually got very engrossed in it. That was great. Um, I'm intrigued as well. You mentioned about it was wasn't a big box office hit. Um, unions are like uh, Satan in the states uh, to many. Um, the, the the reaction of the preacher actually was not unlike the real reaction of uh, many people to the subject of unions and union power. So it's a wonderfully empowering story. Um, Steve, what did you make of it? Um, I do you know what. When Nick suggested it, sorry about this, Nick, but I thought it's a film about trade unions. I am going to be through. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest with you, and I really had to push myself to put it on, but I, I, I did, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I actually watched it in um, in two halves because um, I actually because I was enjoying it so much because I wanted to get as much out of it as I could. So I kind of I watched the first half one night uh, and then decided because I was getting quite tired and you know it was a, a bit of a long day like sort of that that I would I would reserve it the second half for the following evening. So I mean it's not a film that's 
without you know uh, areas that I could critique, I suppose. But on the whole, I I, I really I, I found it quite. I was quite fascinated by you know the, the union. Uh, sorry, the the company activity. I mean, to me, the, the, the May one is a, is basically it's a western. Fellas, we're in a hole full of coal gas here. The tiniest spark at the wrong time is going to be the end of us. So we got to pick away at this situation, slow and careful. We got to organize and build support. We got to work together, together, till they can't get their coal out of the ground without us because we're a union. Because we're the workers, damn it, and we take care of each other. You know, you've got like kind of um, the, the black hat people are the, are, the, are the corporation kind of thing and the white hat people are the, are the workers. And I was so surprised that there was so much gunfire and, and you know, um, um, gun battles in there. I mean, the film like finishes with a kind of um, you know, Western style kind of standoff. You know, in 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 the middle of the town, which is you know, which is really really bloody, and 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 you know, this this apparently genuinely happened, Nick. That's right. This is a this... Uh, yeah, I believe. Um, I'm pretty sure it did. And in fact, um, after I watched it again recently, I um, I checked uh, on good old Wikipedia, and um, it appears as if the 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 climactic gunfight is actually. Uh, pretty much exactly what happened down to the number of people who were killed and who 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 died and who didn't and so it feels quite a little bit hollywood when you see the film but um that that is actually how it panned out and um that part of west virginia is uh, pretty kind of hardcore in terms of their uh, labor relations um even if um i think now quite a lot of them have drifted over to uh become uh trump supporters you know historically it's a very um uh you know tough and uh if not socialist then um you know left-leaning pro-union part of the states yeah but i didn't realize like you know that that that, that when i was i was this when when you know the unions were first forming um I don't know enough about American yeah. uh, union history to say, but I mean, I think, uh, yeah, there was a lot of activity uh, around the time of the First World War and post-First World War and um, a lot of resistance to unions. Uh, you had the International Workers of the World, the Wobblies. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was an, an important time for uh, organising unions. But um, I, um, I like that political aspect of the film, but, I, I mean, to me, it's... Uh, there's a lot of pleasures to be had aside from that. I mean, it's as you say, it's it's a western, yeah. and um, it's uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. Mm. And you, I well, might add, you managed to force me without knowing to watch a western as well. And you know, ah. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Ian, yeah. did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, agreeing with everyone else, and yeah, a western by all accounts, but. One of those weird things where you think of a Western, you think of a desert, when actually you can have everything to do with a Western in the middle of a thick forest. And large parts of America are like that. This is also one of those grey areas of history between formation of proper union controls, proper safety regulations and proper policing, which is why you then get the appearance of these guys in the film that act like, you know, mercenary lawmen 
And it's like, well, no, they're private detectives. They're like Pinkertons, as would probably be the best comparison we'd have. And, you know, looking back, it's like, how was society at a place or how were parts of the world like this at this time? I thought it was different. And, yeah, it's an interesting history lesson slash real-life drama. But, yeah, I think the location and obviously then the mix of nationalities that you have, it's all... Yeah, a very interesting mix of things at a volatile time of development, I think. And if you look at other countries, you know, often these things are necessary stages of development because you can't, how do you end up with an FBI? You know, you end up with that because police are inefficient for what happens in a country that's the size of 50 countries. So, you know, I had heard of the Cold Wars. I had vaguely notions of these things happening. But, yeah, this is probably the most informative thing I've seen relating to that part of history. So, yeah, it was a good recommendation. And I would probably say about the cast as well, that they're so well-known and they're so well-known for other things, especially someone like Bob Gunton, who maybe isn't a well-known actor, but if you say, oh, he's the guy from Shawshank, you know, the warden, you're like, I know him. Oh, he's in it. Oh, he's a bad guy. <laughs> I thought <laughs> yeah. Bob Goodson. Was so for all of those things, yeah. It's a, it's Bob, a Bob Goodson has that character, doesn't he? he, he Two-faced slimy. Not saying he's typecast, but there's a few in there. <laughs> oh, and what's the other guy? The main, oh, I forgot his name, sorry. The main blonde guy who's just been, it seems like he's been a bad guy or a henchman in so many oh, good 70s God. and 80s films that it's just like, you know, you don't like him from the start and that's kind of good for a true story. Except in NY, he was in NY, I think NYPD Blue, where he was the good cop. He's the good cop in NY. Yeah, well, yeah. That's the weird thing. They're the good guys, but yeah, yeah. Who's the guy that plays the lead role? Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper. Yeah, he's Chris Cooper. He, I can't get my head around Chris Cooper. He's just got this kind of like sort of. He's like the ultra wholesome guy, isn't he? I, I, I was thinking about this. He kind of looks like a sort of a, an honest frog. If you like, he's got this kind of <laughs> sort of rock type mouth, hasn't he? Kind of thing that just kind I of. I think Chris Cooper's appeal is that he does have that everyman quality, but that everyman has grown up, you know, on a gravel road, you know, <laughs> smoking a lot or doing hard things to, you know, he's a great actor. And I do kind of associate him with darker roles, I think. And this is interesting. I thought he'd done a lot more acting before this sort of age, but no, this is his first role and he's playing the hero and he's, well, it's hard to rate it, but, you know, as a fir- as a debut and with others there beside him that we know are greats, you know, yeah, it's, it's surprising that that is his first try, if you know what I mean. I was just going to say, I can believe it was made in 1987. It looked mm. like it could have been made last year. I think that's the cinematography. I mean, you know, Haskell Wexler, I don't know what else was up for an Oscar that year. And, um, you know, I'm sure we don't really kind of care about the Oscars much, but uh, it, it it just looks great. And I think that's part of, um, that's what lifts it kind of out of B-movie status, you know, because you could almost compare it to something like Boxcar Bertha. But Boxcar Bertha, as great as it is, you know, looks like a low-budget film. This is a low-budget film that looks amazing. I mean, just in reference to the Oscars, I would say if somebody asked me what type of film it was, I'd probably say, oh, you know, it's an Oscar film. 
So it's great. It ticks all the boxes. It's got great cast and the subject matter is really interesting. But it might win all the awards and it might be fantastic, but I might only watch it once because, you know, it's that kind of experience, if you know what I mean. But in terms of, it, yeah, I don't mean that in a bad way, but out of the three films that have been put forward today, you know, there's only one that really can tell straight away has some sort of credibility and some sort of um, mass appeal rather than just being about drugs gone wrong, basically. So, yeah, but- I mean, this is... The handling of dangerous materials, if you want to say, they all link. But <laughs> <laughs> That's a very. You know, how do you regulate? How you do? How do you regulate? <laughs> well, thank, I want to thank you, by the way, Nick, for suggesting this. Um, I, I, I don't know about you guys. A lot of my, I, I never lived in London, uh, but every now and then I get a copy of Time Out in the eighties, and you'd always look at the listings, and there'd be these hundreds of cinemas, hundreds of repertory cinemas showing thousands of films that you really wanted to see and they were a lot more difficult to see at the time this one i always fancy first of all i always fancy the sound of it but i never knew how it was pronounced it was it i always thought it was like african matawan is this matawan or or or, or is it more pronounced is it matuan are we going to be matuan who so, knows goodness they said <laughs> make one at the start make one I can say that. That's dead easy that's easy to understand uh, apart from that um Again, it was a blessing. I mean, one of the things, I, I, I love asking other people for recommendations. I love having to watch the movies, which, I, you know, to be part of this, I did. Uh, and I did I did enjoy it greatly. And you say the cast is stellar. It really is. I love David Stratham, by the way. He's um, mm. Oh, yeah. He's, he's fantastic. And he's so cool in it. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's the thing. And that's, this is, we, we've, we've, focused on the, the the history lesson but i mean just as a as a piece of cinema and as a as pleasure you know it, it does play to the gallery you know there's a lot of kind of there's the satisfaction of a kind of fairly generic conventional script and you have this this guy you th- you know who is uh, you know, you think, oh, he's going to come down on the south side of the mine. and uh, But he's the local sheriff. He cares about his people. He feels responsible. He stands up to the, you know, big money. And he's cool with it, you know, especially in the shootout at the end. Did anybody follow up on what happened afterwards? Um, well, th- you mean in historically speaking? Historic, because they kind of have the epilogue and they tell you, you know, in the nice, the narrator tells you what happened, but... There's kind of a lot of violence, and they've, they've stopped it, at the, you know, just before they kill the guy on the courthouse steps, and um, just before they have the trial of all the minors, and they all get off got free, it seems. So I think if we did it nowadays, it wouldn't have finished with the shootout. Mm. But, and also, I suppose it is fact, I was kind of surprised how the shootout happened and ended if you know what i mean i thought it would be well more more balanced if you like to, to see but, the uh, a major character meet his demise kind of off screen really yeah. uh, <laughs> was it was a bit of a shock i have to admit mm. that was clever i think chris cooper is um the you know the chris cooper character is a fascinating character for a film because he's um uh you know he's not he's not passive you know he's very he, he's but he's a pacifist and and he's you know, he's organizing everything and making everything happen, um, and he yeah he's the main character. But is he the hero? I mean you know everybody in the film is a hero, and he's just it's or he's almost like the director in the film, kind of you know putting all these elements together and saying well you guys have got to you know work together and do this and um, 
Well, he is partly vilified and prejudiced against because he's, you know, called a red, called a communist. It's implied he has, you know, leanings that aren't patriotic, if you like. But we'll ignore that because you're going to help us fight against the man. And mm-hmm. for some people, that is all they want of that sort of doctrine or philosophy. You, you know, communism, oh, we're not going to get into it now, but if you start saying it's perfect, but humans aren't, that's kind of the simplest way of saying it. So, yeah, the ideas you present for a union are great, but then making it fair, making it steady, making, you know, that's where it falls down and where these problems occur. A great film. Thanks for the choice, Nick. Really enjoyed it. Let's talk about body melt. Welcome to Terra's new dead end. The first phase is hallucinogenic. The second phase is glandular. The third phase is... Body melt. <laughs> right, well, Body Melt, in case you haven't seen it, is basically a 1993 Australian exploitation, splatter, horror, comedy, techno thriller. If you associate New Zealand with brain dead and bad taste, then Australia of the 90s is going to be Body Melt and Razorback. Or similar things, you know, Australia is a massive empty space and that inspires horror of certain kinds but then you have these little suburban pockets popping up and they can be threatened by forces from outside or in and in australia you get all sorts of weird creatures and monsters anyway so um anyway there's some drugs and a chemical company a drug company that sends out these drugs to these people and they end up mutating exploding melting obviously and all sorts of horrible things happen. Um, it's directed by a guy called Philip Brophy, who's this kind of experimental musician. And so I suppose he's, you know, like a, uh, we have films made by music video directors, and you can sort of tell by this fragmented, you know, almost disjointed style where you've got separate stories, all about people being infected or polluted, but all by the same source. Um and yeah, it ends up being a bit, feels maybe discordant if you watch it. And that's kind of the thing. It feels like a bad trip at points because you've then got random comedic inserts where, you know, we see a rural family that are just inbred hillbillies that, you know, are probably mutants and have a link to the origin of the drugs and all of this. So everyone's a victim of the same evil which ends up being you know corporation business development and that then contrasts with the australian you know great expanse if you know what i mean um yeah i really liked it and i've um well should say there's a lot of soap stars in it and so the joke for an, a british viewer in the 90s would be this is the horror film with ian smith who plays harold bishop from neighbors um, if you're British, you know exactly who that is. If you're not, please look it up. Um, but also, there's loads of other people in it. There's uh, Melanie from Neighbours is in it as well, and people from Shortland Street. So for an Australian watching this, it would be like seeing a dozen of your soap stars in a crazy horror movie. People outside might recognise Harold, and probably Americans will just see it as a crazy Australian film. But, you know, 
I watched this first because of Ian Smith, and I actually met him in 2001, and I, I spoke to him about this film. And <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> quite an experience, but yeah, I was probably the first person to have mentioned it in a while, and uh, yeah, it was fun. So that's why I chose it. I have a little personal connection to it. It's a niche kind of splatter film, but director gives parts of it you know a techno soundtrack or weird australian folk music so i think there's something for everyone and it's probably more palatable and funnier than bad taste for some people i i I did enjoy it the thing i was thinking is how the hell have i never heard of this had you guys seen it before can i ask no 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 No, steve um, actually, I was quite pleased this came on the list because it gave me an opportunity to dig out my 30-year-old VHS tape of it. Of course it did. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an old copy of it somewhere as well. I'm afraid the link I shared, I think there's a link on YouTube which has some of the gorier parts um, cut out. But again, this film is very, it's almost, you know, somebody in Australia made a version of Class of Newcomb High. No. This is that version, and there's so many repeated notes from that. I'm, I don't want to talk about Class of Newcomb High like it's a cultural standard, but when you have exploding pregnancies and genitals and, you know, everyone being polluted by a horrific source, yeah, it's, you know, it's an easy comparison sometimes, whereas things like American flatter like stuff, that's a bit more dystopian, you know, that's dirty cities and crime, whereas this is in the country. Yeah, I, I did think. I mean, its its influences are very. It does wear them on its sleeve. I mean, this is it was like it was like a video shop mashup of everything you might watch on a Sunday afternoon, uh, which was great. Thoroughly from that point of view. So, Steve, you've been waiting for us to 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 catch up with you effectively. Sorry, you, you've been waiting for us to catch up with you. Oh, no, time. with the film, you mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's me, like sort of. I've been watching Body Melt for years, like sort of. <laughs> In fact, actually, I would say Body Melt is probably one of those, what I would call a foundational film for me with regards to my development of my kind of weird and esoteric taste in films. I I remember seeing it years ago, you know, from the local video shop, I think, and being absolutely blown away by it. Um, I think just because it's like no other film. And there's something about... For me, there's something about Australian cult films, which is, you know, something that's so typically Australian. And Body Melt, you know, is is, is really kind of encapsulates that kind of, um, I don't know what, sort of, I don't know how to describe it, kind of frantic kind of, you know, outback kind of, you know, the rest of the world is not there watching this. There's something going on kind of, you know, that, 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 that in the, you know, in 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 the wilderness. I'm not talking in the case of body melt, but I'm talking about Australian films in in general. They always seem to be kind of um, I don't know. They they have this kind of like sort of um, you know, what's the film where they do all the drinking? What's that one called? Waking fright. Waking fright. Yeah, they have the same kind of it has the same kind of feel of like some 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 kind of alien landscape with and it's filled with all, they, they tend to sort of have these kind of weird quirky characters that sort of come in from the side lines and play a kind of a bit part and then kind of disappear um at least that's you know that's how i i sort of experienced a lot of australian films um i think body melt has got some brilliant characters in it i mean like sort of they did 
the bodybuilder guy, like who like is all pumped up on drugs, and then he opens his mouth, and he's got the most <laughs> squeaky, high pitched, Dave voice. Dave Prowse, sorry, like Dave Prowse. Dave Prowse is Dave Prowse. Dave Prowse is the is Darth Vader. He's the Green, body Green of Darth Man. Vader. Green but, um, no, in the film. No, no, no. He's just like, but he has a high pitched Bristolian accent. You know, that's why they didn't use his voice in uh, Star Wars because it would have been more. You know, be like, Luke, I am your father. Right. So, once again, I'm going to pronounce in our leader. He can give you the in depth details of every film made in the early 1980s in the depths of Manhattan. Does he know about a mainstream movie reference like Star Wars? Not a clue. This is why we love you, our leader. Our what? Our leader. Our leader. <laughs> <laughs> but we we'll might have to get Ian to do your voice, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Brilliant! Thanks, thanks for that, Steve. Um, Nick, yeah, I um, I knew it was going to be good. I knew Ian wasn't going to let us down. I had never heard of this film before, wow. and um, uh, and you know, I kind of sort of thought that this is why I always feel inadequate as a member of <laughs> Bristol Cult Film Society. And I thought, oh, I'm going with some, you know, kind of wannabe mainstream Oscar-winning film from the 1980s. And Steve and Ian come up with these, you know, genuine, you know, kind of like cult gems. So, um, yeah, I kind of uh, immediately enjoyed it. And um, uh, it really took off for me with uh, when they arrived in the uh, at the Hillbillies. I mean, I had no idea who was who, what their relationship was. And I just thought, I'm going to go with this movie. It's all going to come together in the end. And they arrive in, the, and the Hillbilly scenes are like, something else you know like another movie texas chainsaw massacre maybe or but yeah but it's it's and it's really funny you know it's kind of like david cronenberg but it's but it's funny and um uh and my favorite line in the whole film when they arrive at the hillbillies house is uh like i think one of the hillbillies says where are you from and they say melbourne and the the hillbilly says where's that you know it's like and they're just they're in upstate victoria they're not very far from melbourne but uh yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. Everything Ian and Steve already said. It was crazy. It was gross. It was. I mean, you know, yeah, you have that. Australia is a deeply strange place, um, and um, <laughs> the music was good. I recognised Harold from um, what I say, EastEnders, <laughs> Neighbours. Neighbours. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know the, the high pitched, squeaky voiced bodybuilder. It, it was, and you know, the effects, it was just, I mean, I, I'm, I, it felt like a trauma movie, actually. Um, uh, and which is kind of funny because um, the next film we're going to talk about is, was distributed by trauma, wasn't it? But this is like much more like a real trauma film. And um, uh, I, I can't remember an awful lot more about it, but I, yeah, I unreservedly recommend it to all members of the Bristol Cult Film Society if they, if you haven't so, seen so it. I, I watched it late at night and, um, Ian, it was interesting you talking about the the print um, without some of the special effects and without the nudity, uh, because that is the one that you linked to. So I, I, I went through this movie, I have to say, quite late at night with the drink in my hand, thinking, this doesn't quite make sense. That, that's yeah. storyline's <laughs> ending, but I, what happened? Um, and I'll give you an example. Funny enough, there's... There's a print right there on YouTube as of today. Somebody's put one up today, oh. uh, which appears to have the right stuff in it. Uh, so that whole plotline about the woman who removes the guy's rib, 
we don't <laughs> see it. It just stops. Yeah. It just stops in the cut version. Um, so, but but I thought it was probably my drinking too much, watching it late at night. I thought I've been dozing three parts, <laughs> and then you go back to. I went back to this uh, today. This is how some people would have seen it in a rural <laughs> most, cinema where they cut people, it up themselves. You know? Most people would have seen it, uh, but I did enjoy it greatly. I had loads going on, um, and as I say, it really did. Uh, it was a wonderful uh, mashup of everything. I, the, that Australian humour, I love the bit when the guy goes in and starts drinking the, um, the disinfectant to try and get rid of it uh, at the start of the film, and the shop he goes into. So the shop assistant gets out a crowbar and a, a can of fly spray to defeat it. <laughs> you know? Absolutely cracking. Uh, I really did enjoy it. And again, watching, uh, re-watching it today, just the variety of gore and splatter in it was entertaining. I mean, none of it ever ties up. There's there's no reason for anything. It's just an evil company with an evil drug that does horrible things to you. Um, so apart from basic even capitalism, but it was greatly enjoyable and a cracking movie to watch late at night with a beer in your hand, uh, which I think is the staple of uh, most of us. Uh, I think um, yeah, just saying about that, it's quite disjointed because apparently the director had four or five short story ideas planned for short films and he got the money and he combined them into one and because he has a he's you know highly respected in experimental fields should we say mm. and so for a lot of people this is like oh wow this is intelligent and funny and smart and also satirical um and if i can just read something i actually found a review and or an interview and Quentin Tarantino mentioned this in an interview. He was talking about Australian horror films and how they've gone away from their soul, which is horror. And uh, quote Quentin Tarantino, and really the Australian film of the 90s that had the most vim and vigour in it was Philip Brophy's Body Melt. I really put that, and this is a big compliment, right alongside Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. as one of the best movies of its type. Cool, sexy, gory, funny horror film. So... I did search as well for Quentin Tarantino quotes about Meet One and Story of a Junkie, just in case. <laughs> and, just, and yeah, I couldn't find them. But Does he not mention them? Does he not he, talk he about did... either of those? <laughs> Crazy, he doesn't mention union films a lot. <laughs> can, I, can I just add, it's also one of the only films I've ever seen where people eat a kangaroo's adrenal gland. That is one of the best bits. <laughs> just because it, it's like, because you know, there's random parts to it that don't make sense, but also it highlights how weird Australia can be. And oh, here's some mutant cannibal people. Oh, he can throw a rock and hit a kangaroo. Got one? What the fuck is it? <laughs> don't you know nothing? It's crazy word. That's a fucking adrenal gland. <laughs> no, I, I was um. I, I, Steve, I was, um, I had my suspicions that you hadn't watched Mates One, and now I know you haven't because you obviously missed a kangaroo adrenal gland scene in uh, Mates One. Busted, uh, busted. <laughs> uh, it was brilliant. I, I also love the fact that the, um, the Pee Wee Herman teenagers who go and see the hillbillies uh, are riven with lust for. Um, Let's say they're not not the most attractive <laughs> of uh... again. That lady is a popular, you know, and award winning Australian actress. No, it's a who's who of Australian nineties and eighties TV, basically. And I don't think I think there's another level to appreciate body melt if you're an Australian, which you know is like saying, you know, you watch a British film and you know who everyone is. 
you know, it's yeah. different for us than it is for an American or an Australian. So, well, wasn't there Cockneys versus Zombies that essentially has got a lot of East Enders doing the same thing? <laughs> yeah, those those ones are a bit different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a bit more knowing, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Steve, talk us through Story of a Junkie. I, I want to say Story of a Junkie, I, I did find the most difficult of the three to get through. That was that lot of 10-minute sections, going out and having to think about it, coming back and watching a bit more 10 minutes. <laughs> Everybody need drugs. Everybody live on drugs. Main, main, main basically thing. Everybody, everybody can't stop messing with drugs. Um, yeah, sto- story of a junkie. I've, I've got a first thing I want to say is I'm so pleased that somebody else has actually seen it. I don't think I've actually ever met anyone else apart from myself that's actually seen this film. Um, it's. I think it's a great film. I think it's a really, really um, wonderful piece of historic cinema. Sadly, it is, as Nick said, distri- distributed by Troma. Um, the podcast people won't be able to see this, but I'm going to hold up the DVD. <laughs> and you can see how, like, Troma have decided to market this movie. It's like, I think it says on the cover, um, Gringo ain't injecting insulin. And it's got a picture of Gringo... Or, um, or otherwise, other whose other name was John Spacely, um, wrestling with a snake. Um, whilst there's some kind of strange, kind of psychedelic colours, kind of all going on in the background and stuff. Hmm. This is just not how this movie looks. You know, the movie is a, is is a gritty um, document to 1980s New York underground. Uh, you know, heroin world, um, which is, which is, I think that's what makes it for me a really, really interesting piece of film. Um, because films like Story of a Junkie for me are allow me access to places that I would never ever have access to. You know, and this film is like going back um, to the nineteen eighties and going into these, you know, these sort of ghetto areas of New York. Um, it features the kind of the shooting galleries. Um, there are various characters uh, around um, Gringo, um, you know, and a, a little kind of sort of um, vignettes of their of, of their lives, if you like. But it's also it's a really really interesting film. I think it's like if you if you have the DVD, and uh, you know, if anyone's interested in buying the DVD, you can get them on Amazon for next to nothing. Um, you know, which, um, again, I think is a real shame. I think it's a film that should be lauded rather than, you know, on its way to getting lost. It's a very beautiful film, I think. You know, it's, it's you know, Gringo is quite a kind of, he's quite a, a wonderful character. He's he's quite a romantic character, I think. Um, he reminds me of someone out of a, I don't know if any of you guys like Tom Waits' music. He's like a Tom Waits type sort of character. You know, he's he's lost an eye in a in a in a fight. Um, you know, so he wears a, a pirate-like eye patch. Um, he goes everywhere on a skateboard. Like you know, he's got like uh, he wears uh, white leather Cuban heels, which he's always been wearing for like you know the last five or ten years because the heels are actually flapping off his shoe. Um, interestingly enough, um, I watched Sid and Nancy uh, again recently. Alex Cox's Sid and Nancy, 
And um, actually, Gringo or John Spacey, if you like, has got has got a cameo role in that film, which I didn't realise. He actually, um, in the first sort of ten minutes of Sid and Nancy, uh, when Sid gets taken into uh, into jail, um, Gringo actually sort of chips up and says something to him. He's only in it for a few minutes, but it's really wonderful scene because um, obviously it's a much big, bigger budget film, and you can see him properly. And you know, really get a sort of a, a sense of you know who who he was in kind of real life because uh, the film is you guys have seen it, so you you realise it's a lot of it's very dark and a lot a lot of the time you can't quite see what's going on. You know, your your mind has to to sort of fill in bits of the storyline because you can't quite see what's going on. But personally, I I think it's a masterpiece and it's a real document to a time. Uh, and I'm really curious to hear what people's thoughts were. Go on, Nick. What did you think? I loved it. Um, yeah, again, never heard of it before. Um, I knew, uh, you know, most of Steve's recommendations uh, uh, turn turn up trumps. Um, I, I like you, Steve, Steve Noble. I had to um, keep coming back to it. I had to, I had to take it in small chunks. I think partly because it was quite repetitive at first, and uh, as Steve. Naive says quite dark, literally, um, you know, difficult to see what's going on. So I, I saw it in all these little 10 minute chunks. And um, and then this kind of point came in the film where it really became Gringo's film, because up to that point, there's a lot of other characters, which is fine. Um, but I think it took off when it became clearly about him and he started talking about his life and his marriage. And. Um, you, you know, you realise it's essentially a documentary, um, albeit, you know, fictionalised as all documentaries are. Um, it was really very moving, incredibly moving in the end. What he, you know, where you see how um, he ended up, he's ended up where he is, which is not to say that, um, I mean, you know, being a junkie is, you know, we're very tend to be very judgmental about heroin addiction. Um Oh, yeah, it's really bad, you know. I mean, we shouldn't be so judgmental about it. But one of the things about these kind of films I love is they remind us in a way that kind of maybe a mainstream Hollywood film doesn't, that, you know, junkies are intelligent, articulate people. You know, they're human beings like the rest of us. Yeah. And the people in that film are incredibly articulate. And um, the fact that they use heroin is, um, uh, you know, not it's, it's not neither here nor there, but it we forget that they have lives, they have thoughts, they have ideas, they have a backstory. And um, I thought everybody in the film was fascinating. Um, it was very dark and, and kind of difficult to handle in that sense. Um, I mentioned to Steve uh, the um, the film uh, Dusty and Sweets McGee, which um, I think is uh, was set in L.A. And um, also kind of, you know... Um, uh, drama documentary uh, with um, real junkies playing themselves, but that's a kind of you know light, sunny. It's LA, you know. Hey, it's cool. You know, everyone wants to. You know, you can be a heroin and L addict in LA, and you know, still have fun. But New York in the nineteen eighties, it's all at night. It's all incredibly depressing. But I loved it. I like drugs. I like to deal with drugs. I saw works to get my drugs. And mainly, I love, I love drugs, mainly cocaine. Cocaine is a beautiful thing when you're getting high off it. Ian, what did you make of it? 
Uh, yeah, it's dark and a bit nasty and dirty, and yeah, it works great as a semi-fictionalized slice of life in one of the worst parts of New York, I suppose. But I have seen trauma before. I have seen, you know, some of these more recent films, but, you know, there are lots of films that deal with heroin in the 90s, and but it's kind of cleaner, it's kind of nicer, you know, and the people, you know, often have a redemption or of some sort. This felt, you know, like somebody at Troma said, you know what would make a great horror story out there? And I was just saying, not a Troma film. It's definitely, absolutely not. They're not, by, they're not distributed or... They distributed it, but yeah, they, yeah. they bought a number of films that were going to, you know, basically disappear off the shelves. And I think they probably I see, I see. pretty cheap. But they I didn't mean, fund it at the start, but they bought no, it later. Nothing okay. to do with Troma. That's why it's such a disgrace that it's like it has to be <laughs> by Troma uh, under this lurid cover. And like, you know, it, it's like sort of, I think they bought it cheap. I mean, don't quote me on that, but I, that's my sense of trauma because I there are one or two other films I've seen which I would consider really great films. Um, I can't recall them off the top of my head, but but have been distributed by trauma, and people get really confused. Like they sort of they end up picking up something like Story of a Junkie, expecting Toxic Avenger, and then yeah. you know it's like, oh, hang on a minute, this is not what I was. I, I you know I was I was um, sort of paid up for. Some sort of satire like Reefer Madness or, you know, some 70s silly parody when yeah. actually, yeah, it's a weird autobiographical, you know, this guy did this, this, this guy, you know, I think a few filmmakers have done it as well more recently, but what they've just said, this is what I did 10 years ago, here's a snapshot of my life then. And we do get... I suppose there is a sense of a spiritual awakening or some sort of, you know, development. But, yeah, like most of these things, we're just seeing, you know, a moment of this guy's life towards, well, I assume we, he doesn't live for long. And then, you know, if you read his story, you know, it's ultimately doomed. And that's kind of the feeling the film gives, is that this isn't something to escape from. And... I suppose in the terms of the addiction or the city or the way of life, you know, some people are trapped in a cycle or some people are not necessarily bad people, but it's hard to climb out of a hole. And, you know, these sort of films are important, but like Steve says, unfortunately, they don't get the recognition they deserve. They don't get, they get put onto the lists of trashy horror and nasty stuff and they get lost. Which is what we're here for to re-exhume these valuable documents. i got to say, um, I didn't know anything about it at all. Uh, I didn't read anything about it at all. Went into it thinking I was about to watch a drama. Uh, <laughs> thought, blimey, they've been really cheeky shooting on the streets of New York. Look at look what they're doing. And it, I thought, after five minutes, I thought, perhaps it's not a drama. And I just checked my facts at that point. Uh, interesting for me, it was a British director. Like Kowalski is a Brit. Um, I don't know. A, yeah. It's done yeah. a few documentaries. Uh, seems some... Uh, some stuff on there. I mean, did you did, did we really watch a man die on film? Because it certainly plays that, whether it's a real, you know, real scenario or not. Which again, slightly confused the fact and fiction thing. Um, but uh, yeah, as I say, it was it was hard work. Uh, but what I did, like you talked about the redemption. Um, 
there's that beautiful shot at the start, which is straight from a music video of him skating down the road with half a dozen motorbikes behind him. Mm. Done incredibly well. It's beautiful. All to a sort of electronic soundtrack, which is great. The soundtrack is quite astonishing to this film. If you like the music of that era, the, the dawn of hip hop and breakbeats, it's it's great. And you do wonder whether actually it was licensed a lot of it. The only yeah, I've, rec- was- I've recommended it to a friend solely based on the soundtrack. I've just said it's a dirty film about a New York junkie, but you'll love the music and the seeing the old city. And they do the whole of the message by Grandmaster Flash, don't they? Oh, that's whole, fantastic. Yeah. Whole song plays that. But Steve, I'm with you on this. I, uh, It's a fantasy era to me, New York in the late 80s, early 90s. Times Square, it's sleaziest. Uh, and this is obviously a very realistic depiction of what it was actually like, which is utterly fascinating. And you're kind of glad you never had to live there yourself, but it would have been a great place to visit. You talked about the marketing on that slip on the sleeve of the, your DVD. Did you guys ever read Psychotron- Psychotronic magazine? Uh, brilliant sort of semi-fancy magazine that came out again late 80s, early 90s, very much about this milieu. It was a, a New York critic, I can't remember what his name was off the top of my head, uh, but Psychotronic Film magazine. Um, and he recommended everything, he had loads of recommendations, but Times Square, 42nd Street, that was his haunt, and it really brought back that memory. And that DVD screen that you showed us, DVD cover, looks just like one of their magazine covers. It was obviously right. obviously the design influences at the time. Um, you talked about his redemption, and I love that. You, there's that wonderful contrast with him trying to give up at the very end, you know, taking his last shot and then trying to go cold turkey um, and go through all that. But you've also seen him with a phenomenal harmonica play. He plays the harmonica. You think, good God, stand on the street corner, play your harmonica for an hour. You make 100 bucks, it's you know, really talented harmonica player. And then that lovely skate video to the do what music at the end, which closes it. And again, you remember, you, you always feel those highs and lows um, right there and then as you're watching the movie. So, yeah, very powerful choice. I, I, I had to watch it in short chunks, uh, but I'm glad I did. And, uh, and as I say, if there's anything that this inaugural view has given me it's three films i've never seen three yeah one of which i knew one of which i didn't at all well two of which i didn't at all um and it's been a brilliant experience a, a lot of people in the, the british cult uh, bristol cult film society are are from uh, the states of course including uh people from new york and they you know the new yorkers undoubtedly um you know do know this milieu to some extent um I I did go to New York as a 16 year old in 1980 and we stayed in a hotel just off Times Square. And um, I think that I was just in a dream, you know, like I mean, in the sense I didn't really kind of realize just what a crazy on the edge place Times Square was uh, then. And uh, until one day. When I got separated from the rest of my family on the uh, the subway and uh, came out at the Times Square and was pounced upon by this, uh, you know, kind of character out of Taxi Driver who was trying to sell me every drug under the sun and, you know, <laughs> girls and boys. And so, I mean, it, yeah, it really was like that. You know, my one and only brief memory of 1980s New York is um, it was you know, that area was uh, very much like a gringo or story of a junkie junkie yeah fantastic i think when films take advantage of you know their diegetic surroundings of decay and disaster especially maybe recently something like hurricane katrina several films use that as a way to you know put stuff in the story but 
things like this, you're yeah, recording a day, a day in hell sometimes. And if you do it well and you do it with a good character, you know, can be very interesting. I was just going to say one more thing about the story of a junkie. I, get, I, 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 I really feel quite strongly that this is a, an uplifting film. You know, it's like kind of it, it is, it, you know, what it depicts is kind of is the subject matter is perhaps not uplifting. But like like Nick said, you know, it's, it's a study of the, of the humanity around that. And I think like the way the film ends, uh, like, like Steve was saying, with, with this kind of long shot of him, of Gringo on his skateboard with this doo-wop music in the background is one of the most beautiful pieces of cinema I think I've ever seen. Definitely one of the best endings to a film I've ever seen. And every time I've watched it, and I've I've only watched it twice, but twice maybe over five years, rather than coming out of the film depressed, I've 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 come out of the film really enriched, really you know, and, and felt quite positive about things. So you know, I don't I I just I want to I want to put that in its corner. I think. Was it? I think Oscar Wilde. I think you said we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. Oh, that's a poignant quote. And so for a film like that, like I say, where it's dark and nasty, but there is that sliver of hope and these people are in a, they might be bad or they might be in a bad place, but they're trying. And that's the only thing you can sort of take away. The only positive is almost that, you know, be kind. <laughs> hope you enjoyed the panel discussion there. There are links to Meituan, Body Melt and Story of a Junkie in the show notes if we've piqued your interest. But now... Now it's the Blu-ray Bloodhound. John Kirk is our man in the know, our lord of the launch, our prince of the pre-order. John, what's happening today in the world of Blu-ray? So, welcome to my first call, Blu-ray Roundup, and what a time to be starting. With Halloween just around the corner, the boutique Blu-ray labels are pulling out all the stops with some fabulous releases planned for October. With so many great additions in the pipeline, I can't cover everything in detail, but here are some of my personal highlights from some of the best labels around in the UK. I'm starting this month with what continues to be my personal favourite distributor, Powerhouse Films' its indicator label, though some of the others featured in this month are giving them a run for their money. On 30th of October, in the UK and US, they're releasing two more of their outstanding genre Lynn collection in limited edition 4K and Blu-ray versions. This time we have 1979's Fascination, which features the iconic image of Bridget LaHaye waving the scythe, and 1975's Lips of Blood, starring the equally iconic twins Cathy and Marie-Pierre Castel. These films are rich in atmosphere and feature Lennon's classic imagery of graveyards and beaches. Each film comes with an 80-page book of new and archival writing, plus loads of new and archival extras. There'll be 20 films in total released on the label, and the first four were outstanding, so hopefully these will be equally as strong. Special mention for Indicators November Release 2, which I can't wait for, The Criminal Acts of Todd Slaughter, 8 Blood and Thunder Entertainment, 1935-1940. to the limited edition set out in the UK and US on 20th of November looks amazing and includes the absolute classic and a personal favourite of mine, 1936's Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber at Fleet Street. If there was an award for hottest new label, 
it would definitely go to Radiance, created by former Arrow Films director of content, Francesco Simeone. They've released some real gems from across the globe in their short time, including several Robert Altman movies and two outstanding box sets of classic Italian cinema. In October, they're releasing the atmospheric 1970s horror classic Messiah of Evil about a woman who's caught up in strange incidents after travelling to a coastal Californian town to find her missing father. This was one of the first Bristol Court Film Society screenings I attended at the city's 20th century flicks back in the day, and it stuck with me ever since, and I've been waiting for an edition just like this. The limited edition set features a brand new restoration from a 4K scan, a documentary placing the film in the context of 1970s American independent cinema, an 80-page book, and much, much more. It sold out weeks before its release date, but a standard edition has already been announced and is available for order. I'm also looking forward to the rest of Radiance's October slate, Hong Kong horror comedy Visible Secret, and Italian horror The Whole World Dr. Hitchcock, directed by Ricardo Freda. Radiance also have distribution rights to UK release versions of existing US releases, and October sees this continue with the rare video edition of The Night of the Devils. All of these Radiance releases are out on 23rd of October. The once hallowed Arrow has got some stick lately with many commenting they're no longer what they once were. Whilst they've had their issues with disc errors which have needed replacements to be pressed, I still think they're amongst the best labels around. Just check out their phenomenal box sets, Bruce Lee at Golden Harvest and enter the video store Empire of Screams from earlier this year. On 23rd of October, they're releasing Hellraiser Quartet of Torment, featuring the first full films in the classic British horror series in separate Blu-ray and 4K editions. These promise to be equally as collectible as the Scarlet Box releases of the original Hellraiser trilogy, which Arrow released a few years back, and mark 4K debuts for the films. Each film gets a brand new 4K restoration, and the sets overflow with extras, including a 200-page hardback book, commentaries, documentaries, and a plethora of archival materials. The label's also releasing 4K and Blu-ray editions of Lucio Fulci's outstanding 1981 feature, The House by the Cemetery, on 9th of October. Like the first three Hellraiser films, this is another re-release from the label, but it looks to be the definitive edition of the final instalment of Fulci's celebrated Gates of Hell trilogy, and includes limited edition packaging, 60-page book, a fold-out double-sided poster, and six very cool double-sided collector's postcards. Another relatively new label is Treasured Films, who have released stacked editions of Jeff Lieberman's Satan's Little Helper and Antonio Magretti's The Last Hunter. Up next is a limited edition release of the former Section 3 80s UK video nasty and, video and VHS favourite Mausoleum. Now this looks to be a stacked edition too, a 4K scan and restoration from the original negative, perfect fan book, audio commentary by the esteemed Kim Newman and Barry Forshaw, and over two hours of video essays and interviews, and including an appreciation by one of my favourite court cinema experts, Stephen Thrower. It'll all be wrapped up in a brilliant set with featuring artwork by the always outstanding Graham Humphreys. The first 500 orders from the Treasured Films website also receive a web store exclusive Bitey Boobs Nomad Demon Magnet, an A3 reversible fold-out poster, so what are you waiting for? It's out on 30th of October. Now, there are so many other releases coming out and there's so much more to, to mention. I'm just going to very quickly whiz through a few of the other big labels in a bit less detail. Um, but there's some, some more really eye-catching releases on the uh, horizon. First, the Criterion Collection, a release in a trio of pre-code shockers by Todd Browning, director of the 1931 Universal version of Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. The Criterion set this time features the 1932 Freaks, 1927's The Unknown starring Lon Chaney, and the atmospheric 1925 silent feature The Mystic. They've got new restorations, audio commentaries, interviews, documentaries and more, and are out on 17th of October in the US and 23rd of October in the UK. 
Second Run are one of the premier labels around for Eastern European cinema, as well as some documentaries. And on 23rd of October, they're releasing Pearls of the Deep from a new 4K restoration by the Czech National Film Archive. This film features vignettes by some of Czech cinema's greats, and the disc includes three additional short films, and a booklet is also part of the package. Another of the top distributors around are Eureka, and I hope to focus more on them in future editions. For now, keep an eye out for their 23rd of October release of Beach of the War Gods, starring Jimmy Wang Yu, and uh, which in a film which is celebrating its 50th anniversary. The limited edition set features the Hong Kong cut and a load of informative extras. And also in uh, October, the 30th of October to be precise, Eureka are releasing one of my absolute favourite silent features, the Louise book, uh, Books Outing Pandora's Box, directed by G.W. Paps. Absolutely love this film. Um, it looks to be an amazing set. 60-page book, new audio commentary, three new visual essays, and it's limited edition as to be expected. It looks fab. 101 Films are to release packed limited editions of Christopher Nolan's early effort, Memento, on 16th of October, and the 1976 Meat Cleaver Massacre, featuring Christopher Lee on the 23rd of October. Third, Third Window Films have just started releases of films by the Japanese Director's Company, created in 1982 to help support young filmmakers outside of the country's major studio system. Uh, the first release in September was Cure Pulse and Creepy director Kiyoshi Kurosawa's The Guard from Underground. The second release, which is out on 30th of October, is of the first Japanese Giallo slasher film, Door. I mean, what's not to like about that? And it also comes with Door 2, Tokyo Diary. The set will include an insert by Japanese cinema expert Jasper Sharp, who's absolutely brilliant and so knowledgeable for the first 2,000 copies. Second Sight, who are a strong candidate for Label of 2023 for me, thanks to their outstanding and highly collectible limited edition releases of the likes of Picnic of Hanging Rock, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Martin, and It Follows, are bringing out the Ginger Snaps trilogy on limited edition blue around 30th of October. That one's got a 112-page book, some collector's art cards, and an absolute stack of new and archival extras. Uh, the BS, BFI have also had a great year, and in October, they've got Volume 3 of Short Sharp Shocks, which is on their magnificent flip-side label. This is a two-disc set out on the 9th of October and features 10 shorts from 1951 to 1985, over two hours of interviews and video essays, and then the first pressing only an illustrated booklet of new writing. And finally for this month, a special mention for the great folk at 88 Films, who brought us a huge amount of excellent cult Blu-rays, not just this year, but for many years now. This year alone, they've released action films from Jackie Chan and Jean-Claude Van Damme, lots of Hong Kong cinema, including some Category 3 titles like The Bunkers, The Untold Story, and plenty of Euro horror. One to look out for is their upcoming release of horror films by Pete Walker, The Flesh and Blood Show, which is going to be a huge box set, their biggest yet. Um, and unfortunately, as a result, they've, uh, of it being so big, they've delayed it until early 2024. But it's definitely one I'd keep an eye out for. Uh, 770s horrors, including a classic House of Whipcord and Frightmare, a booklet and loads of special features. If it's anything like their highly recommended exploitation collection of Walker films, it'll be well worth the wait. And that's it for this time. In future, we'll have film festival reports, interviews with spectacular cult film figures, and plenty more general cultishness. Come join the Facebook group, Bristol Cult Film Society, for lots more nauseous goodness where this came from. Pod people this time round. Pod people this time were Alicia Ann Archer with her mysterious and beautiful melodies. Nick Gilbert and Ian Loder on the panel The Blu-ray Bloodhound, John Kirk And our glorious leader El Presidente! 
Steve Naive, whose idea it all was in the first place. The pod was written, produced and presented by me, Shameful Steve Noble, Shameful Steve on Twitter. And remember... be honest harold bishop saying fuck is just the best <laughs> thing about it so that's <laughs>